You're listening to the Brick by Brick podcast, where we take you from the ground up on real estate investing. Join us on our entrepreneurial voyage through the world of flipping houses, managing rental property, and building a real estate empire. Welcome back to the Brick by Brick podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. I am John Aroko here as always with Ryan Goldfarb. Uh, today we have a very special guest that I'm very excited to chat with. Ryan, do you want to introduce him? Sure. Thanks, John. Um, today we have Gabe De Silva of the De Silva Group. He's best known, at least to me, as New Jersey's at a level guy. Um, but we're stoked to have him. He's he brings a ton to the table from mindset to tactical to evolution, uh, evolving from sort of a, something that starts as a side hustle to something that grows into a full-blown business. Um, we're excited to div- dig into that today and we're stoked to have you. Thanks, Gabe. How's everything going today? Good, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Like you said, uh, <clears throat> had quite a run and done a lot of different things. So excited to unpack any and all of those things and bring as much value as I can to the audience first and foremost. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I guess let's let's start off by going through your background a little bit. Can you talk about your life a little bit before real estate and then how you ultimately made the transition into real estate? Yeah. So my my origin story looks a lot like most people's, like working a nine to five, coming out of undergrad, ultimately got my MBA as well, but was working in a cube, absolutely hated it, just felt stifled, right? Just couldn't do anything other than what was uh, the task laid before me. That started to really weigh on me. And so a decade into corporate finance gigs, the cube farm, I set out to hang my own shingle, did that alongside a buddy who was in a similar place in his journey. And so we set out to (laughs) start a restaurant. So our first foray into entrepreneurship wasn't real estate, it was food service, which come to find out has served me super well because food service is far less forgiving than real estate investment. You have no choice but to get your systems and processes tight because food is not forgiving. Food has a shelf life, right? It's it's not a flip house. It, it, It has a week and then it's gone bad. So that really forced us to get systematic about how we ran our business. Did that for four years, ultimately sold internally to my partner. He went on to run the restaurant. I transitioned over to real estate and that's six years ago. So this is my decade anniversary as an entrepreneur, four of which were in food and six in real estate. What, what was the inspiration to go into the restaurant industry to begin with? So I wouldn't say that it was anything about food in particular, just like for me, it's nothing necessarily about real estate. I think they're, they're both conduits. I think it's just a vehicle. I think widgets are, are a vehicle, like whatever, whatever it is that you do in the entrepreneur world is, is essentially a vehicle to achieve freedom. That's why most of us break free of the cube and set out to do our own thing. It happened to be food because to give my partner a lot of credit, he was the driving force behind that. He came back from a wedding in LA and said, hey, there's these concepts popping up everywhere out there. It's these like light, fair, healthy lifestyle kind of inspired restaurant concepts. I don't see that here. And he was right. We didn't. So um, we decided to uh, open our own. And so we, we did a... Uh, 
a standalone, like single unit restaurant from the ground up, no franchise. Uh, we created the concept, we created the menu. And so, yeah, it was, it was food then. And it's, you know, it was, it's real estate now and down the line. One thing I will say about real estate though, it'll always be part of the plan because of the legacy wealth component that doesn't exist in any other space. So can you talk about a little bit how you ended up, I, did, were you doing real estate while you were doing the restaurant business or did you have a you know, quick turn of the page from restaurants to real estate. How did that transition happen? Yeah, I so I had to completely exit the restaurant. I'm I'm one of those guys that that's all or nothing. So I don't see how I could have been wholeheartedly tied into both because I was so committed to the food, the the restaurant when we were doing that, and am and it was and and am still committed to real estate when I transitioned over to this. So no, to answer your question. I, I pumped the brakes on that, completely broke free of food, and then transitioned into real estate full time. And I didn't dabble in real estate. Like when I went in, I went all in. What's the trajectory looked like over the last six years uh, as you've made that transition to full time real estate? Can you talk through your first deal and then I guess how you went from zero to one, from one to 10, uh, and then ultimately to today? Just I guess a quick 60 second rundown if you can. My journey over the last six years, I'll say it's looked different than most real estate investors in the fix and flip spaces journey because I've sought to always and ever push it to the next level, the next logical step in my evolution as an investor. So at first it was a cosmetic rehab, which we can get into that story if you guys want, turned into a full gut reno. And after doing the gut reno, I said the next logical step in this progression is to do an addition then an add a level, then new construction. And now that's taken us to repositioning commercial assets. Things have evolved that way over the six years because I said, hey, whatever it is that we're taking from this most recent project, we're not going to stop there and just replicate that. We're going to take that and we're going to push into the next level. We're going to take that, whatever it is that we learned there and you know the profits that we've generated from that deal and keep pushing forward. So we can talk specifically about how that looks, but in like a quick 60 second kind of deal, that's how the kind of evolution has looked uh, Mm -hmm. at a high level. Yeah, I would love to go back to that first deal and kind of go back to your mindset, your thought process. Like, why did you select that property? Uh, You said it was, I think you said that the first one was initially going to be aesthetic and then turned into a gut renovation. Is that what Mm -hmm. you said? Yeah, Yeah. I would love to just just go back to that, that moment and kind of hear how seems like that was the beginning of the evolution. So I'd love to hear how that spawned it. Yeah, it's a good one. It's uh, So I set out to do a kitchen, two bathrooms, refinish some floors, paint, typical cosmetic rehab type stuff. We call um, kitchen and baths cosmetic. I know some folks don't, but for us, that's still, that still would have been a cosmetic rehab. When you say we, is this you alone or are you working with other people here? Yeah. So early on, this is just me picking up day labor. But one thing I always did do is even when it was just me, I always said we. I was always casting the vision bigger because my expectation was that it would grow and evolve. So always we. So we, which at the time was me picking up day labor in front of Home Depot, yeah. something I encourage <laughs> nobody to do. Right? This Home is Depot? something yeah. you guys have likely heard <laughs> me say a dozen there. times, <laughs> something I say to my students all the time, like this is absolutely not how to do it. This was six years ago. It's what I knew. I picked up labor, was dropping them off. I was running to the town, doing odds and ends, picking them up, bringing them pizza midday. So 
each day they were demoing more than I had anticipated. And over the course of five days, that turned into, well, first it was a wall, then it was another wall, then it was a whole room. Come Saturday after five days of demo with two or three day laborers each day, I kind of just looked around at a, like practically a gutted house and said, what the hell happened here? Like, what did I do? My intention was to get in and out quick. I come to find out I'm like dug in here uh, and I'm going to have to gut reno it. The beauty of all of this is that that particular house, that canvas property sat in this really desirable enclave of a town in Union County here in New Jersey. And it warranted a gut reno. I didn't know enough at the time to have done the math that way. So I was going to go in and out quick and do a quick flip, a quick turn. Well, this you can't replicate. The one thing you can never recreate is the location of the property. So this one happened to be in the most desirable enclave in the entire town, which warranted the gut reno. So this mistake turned out to be a blessing. I would have done I probably would have made 40, like when I go back and think on the numbers, if I had gotten in and out and just done my cosmetics or whatever, but we wound up making 86 on our first gut reno. So it wasn't planned, but it's always part of the bigger plan. Did you go into it when you did this reno where you say like, this is going to be my career, I'm going to do real estate, this is my start? Or was it like, I'm just going to test the waters and see how it is? I knew that this was it. Like, the same thing with the restaurant. Like, it's, I'm really an all or nothing kind of guy. So mm-hmm. when I say, and, and I'll often say burn the ships, right? That whole thing of like, if you burn the boats upon reaching shore, you have no choice but to take the island because you have no boat to go home. You will take the island or you will die. So like, I know that's intense, but that's how I approached real estate. Like I'm not here to play games. Like this is, there's no plan B. So when I did it, I did it all in. And, uh, and yet yeah, it's, it served me really, really well to have that mindset. How long did that whole project take? Like from finding the place to ultimately selling it? I know the accidental gut, I'm sure, took longer than the cosmetic reno. But <laughs> what, was, what was like the timetable? Uh, maybe it was like close to close. It was six months. I, I can't remember. It was, it was, That's fast. It yeah. was a long time ago. I know that by our standards, it would have, it took long given how efficient we are now. I know that by most people's standards for a project that size, it's still relatively quick. Mm-hmm, right? Can't remember. I want to say six months, but uh, like I'm just thinking, it, like, did the seasons change? That's how I try and remember here because we got four seasons. So yeah, I remember picking chestnuts off the tree in the front yard, and I remember <laughs> shoveling snow to the front walk for the showings. So <laughs> we made it through a couple. Of, we made it through a season there. So you got the first one, and then the second one was right after, or did you? Were you doing the second one simultaneously? So here's another thing. This, that's a great point that I, I actually hadn't thought back on that as a differentiator until maybe two weeks ago on a group call. And I was thinking, you know, what's the difference between where we're at now and where a lot of the other guys who started alongside us at those local networking events or, you know, guys you'd see a lot early on when we were still meeting in person, <laughs> those guys who didn't see the thing through yeah. or who find themselves still kind of doing the same things. What it was when I went back and looked on it is we never settled on just the one deal. Like we could have done that one start to finish, then looked for the other one, done that one start to finish, then looked for the next one. And you know what would have happened? There would have been these gaps, these lulls in between where you'd have spent the profit you made on the other one, right? So what I think looking back on it now is a big differentiator for us 
in terms of how fast we've scaled is that we always ever did deals in parallel. As soon as that one was, we were making moves on that one. I was already, once I got like the gutted thing figured out and realized, wait, I'm in for a lot more here than I you know, thought I was. I said, okay, that being said, I still need to be looking for the next one because this is going to be my career. And I can't just be doing this, then stop, then doing the next one, then stop. So we got into the next deal before that deal was done. As you were constantly pushing yourself. So I, I mean, I, I've just gathered from, from your social media, from talking to you, it's clear that you're big on the personal development, professional development, pushing the envelope. While you were going from zero to one, one to two, up to five, 10, however many projects, was there intention behind each successive step, step you took? So I, what I'm asking is, were you, were you doing a postmortem after each project and saying, consciously saying, okay, I, I started this cosmetic project that turned into a gut. Now the next step is an addition and then an add a level? Or were these just sort of like ideas that you had as you were looking at what other opportunities were out there? No, it, it was in that sense, it was intentional. Like we were, I do a postmortem on every deal. Uh, even then I was doing it. It wasn't as structured as it is now. Like now our postmortems on every deal are a meeting and they look a certain way and they're driven by a certain spreadsheet. So we've got a system for that. Back then it was me taking camera phone pictures of shit I did wrong. That's what it looked like, right? Because we always say systems are just fancy words for lists. Every system starts out as a list. Well, what ultimately became our postmortem our project like debrief started out as me taking a bunch of pictures of all the stuff I did wrong that cost me money. So I wouldn't do it again. And that's what actually those of you, well, this isn't a video, right? So no one's going to necessarily see what I'm pointing at, but behind me is a copy of our flip tips book, which is essentially all the mistakes I made in the first three years documented and compiled into an ebook, which I have a printout of behind me. I, I always, and like, it was always about, okay, like, how do I not do that thing again? Like the worst kind of mistakes are the ones you make twice. Mm -hmm. So let me learn from this and keep it moving. And, and so, yeah, I, I was intentional in that sense. I, I'll say that for sure. Yeah. It's funny when, when we first met a few months ago, I mentioned the flip tip book because I think this was probably two, three years ago, um, around when the, when the ebook first came out, I stumbled across it and I, I think that might have actually been the inspiration for what we have now, which is we use Slack often for project management yeah. and we now have a mistakes channel, which we <laughs> admittedly don't keep up as, That's one as of our frequently mistakes. as we should. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't, we don't log the mistakes as frequently as we should, but um, it, the idea was still the same. And I think it was probably spawned from uh, your book. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. So in, in those first couple of years, how many flips, how many deals did you ultimately do? I think we ramped up to our bit. I remember like milestones, right? So I don't, I don't know how many deals we did in year one or two or three. I know that in year three, there was a month where we bought eight deals. That, that to me is a milestone month for us. Those are all to, to flip or some are like wholesale or? No, they were all, they were all at a levels. They were all going to uh. be big monster deals, big flips. I sold uh, last in, first out, that whole like accounting model. Uh, the last deal in was actually the first deal I sold off in a wholetail. So our intention was to do them all. I realized that with the size of the team I had, we didn't have the bandwidth to take on the eighth deal. We were likely going to drown in deals, <laughs> right? Because you're also buying them all at the same time. So they're all going to hit rough inspection at the same right, time. Right. They're all going to hit. Not staggering your subs. 
yeah, we were going to be up against it. So at that time, and so this is in year three. I remember this specific milestone, working up to that point, getting lenders comfortable enough with us that we could raise that kind of money. The marketing was hitting in such a way that that many deals were finding us. That's a testament to three years of just go, like head down, do the work, uh, do what you say, say what you do, um, you know, continue to be relevant on social. Social has been very powerful for us. I know it's not a, you know, an exact answer, but that's what those first three years looked like. So how, how did your team evolve? So obviously it was just you initially, you had the day laborers. At some point, did you hire uh, construction people full-time? Did you uh, sub stuff out, I'm guessing, to you know, tradesmen? How did that look? Yeah, we're, so we sub everything. We, we're licensed GCs in that we, we submit for our own permits, but we don't do our own work. We have, uh, our team is super lean, right? Like I think of uh, the mouse, the gazelle, and the elephant. Like the mouse is your standalone sole proprietor like type operation. The gazelle, that's us. Like we're super lean. We can do a lot with very little. You know, I'll break down what our team looks like, but then, uh, and then the elephant is like a fat gluttonous organization. It's like the Titanic. Like you're not turning <laughs> that boat, right? It takes a long time. Right. So, the opposite of nimble. So from a gazelle standpoint, it's, it's like the visionary and the integrator. If you guys are familiar with EOS and traction, right? The visionary and the integrator, a lot of times in an organization as it's growing and evolving is the same person. That's me, right? So I cast the vision. I'm also the one that sees that the vision is cascade down through my organization and executed on. So I'm visionary and integrator in my organization. And then there's a director of finance, a project manager, and a marketing manager. Those four roles, visionary and integrator, and then a marketing manager, a finance manager, and an operations manager, which in our world is considered a project manager, right? Your field guy who's overseeing all your subs. You can do a lot with an organization that size. You don't need to in-house a bunch of labor. I knew I didn't want to do that because at the restaurant in our first year, we had had 50 employees. Wow. So if you just like sit on that and think about that, like that's a person a week. That's absurd how many bodies came through the door at that place. And so I knew from then on, like I'm not running a big gluttonous, like, you know, organization that's mismanaged, that uh, like left hand's not talking to the right. Like, so I, I knew I wasn't going that route. So anyway, we're still very lean and, uh, and we always will be. I, I just think if you have A players, you can get a lot more done with four A players than you can with 24 Bs. In the last, so uh, that year or the, the month you had where you bought the eight, that was three years in, you said? So that was what, 2018 or so? Mm -hmm. So how, how, have things, how have things evolved from 2018 to now? Is that the kind of pace that you're still running? How did, how's everything evolved from there? Yes. I love this question because this is one of my biggest learnings as an entrepreneur. So it's, you don't have to do more of what you did to get where you are, to get where you want to go. So just because you can buy eight deals a month, doesn't mean you should. Um, just cause you did eight last year, doesn't mean you should do 16 next year, whatever that looks like in individual, you know, folks' businesses. What I've come to realize is that the time, energy, effort, the dollars, they're commensurate if you just take your unique set of skills and move it to a different asset class, but the ROI can become exponential. It's, it's just not linear. Like don't do eight, then do 16 or don't do eight, then do 10, then do 12. Like whatever that looks like, just step back, right? 
slow down to speed up. Uh, a good um, a mentor once told me. So kind of like step back and say, okay, well, what is it that we've learned from doing this at the level that we've done it at that we need to now take to the next level? And it's not always linear. In fact, more often than not, for the real growth to take place, it cannot be linear. So yeah, it's one of my greatest learnings as an entrepreneur. You don't have to do more of what you did to get where you are to get where you want to go. Just because you did, just because you can, does not mean you should. Mm -hmm. And so for years we did, right? We just kept buying more houses. Let's flip more houses. Yeah, that's great. I mean, the cash flow was awesome. But uh, uh, how, how then are you going to grow? Are you like, there's only so many houses to buy and flip. There's a lot. I mean, shouldn't say it that way, but, <laughs> <laughs> but like, so anyway, we've, we've now, and maybe that's where we're, you know, we're going next in this conversation is like, we've taken that unique set of skills that we developed in the single family construction, heavy fix and flip space. And we've taken it to commercial. So what does your current pipeline look like or what, what are you targeting these days? Yeah. So our, so still, because we have done what we've done, said what we've said and done what we've said. All, all those things have put us in a position where those deals still find us and they likely will for a long time. And I'm happy that they do because there's opportunities to do the ones that make sense. There's also opportunities to package or JV on the ones that don't necessarily or aren't highest and best, right? Use of our resources right now. So those deals will still find us the value add, construction heavy, single family fix and flips, the scraped land, right? To put up new construction. We're still doing that. We're still seeing that. Like we're outwardly looking at now, like pipeline wise, what are we trying to bring in is, is commercial asset, like reposition opportunities. Like can we take, excuse me, especially with what's going on now in the market, right? Commercial's taking a beating. There's a lot of opportunity. So can we bring what we learned in the single fam fix and flip arena to commercial? And then what's it look like? Like how do we add value to a commercial asset uh, with our construction savvy? And, and that's what we're doing now. That's We're into a deal right now where it looked like a really good conversion, right? A commercial asset that could have been carved up into six apartments. And that's where we were going with it. And I've been on podcasts and talked about this deal. And as we're, you know, doing our due diligence, come to realize that, wait a second, there's highest, there's another use for this that's even better than carving it into apartments. And just because we know how to, you know, make apartments doesn't mean we should make apartments here. And so anyway, that's evolved into something completely different. And we're going to retrofit it and turn it into a school. Uh, and anyway, we can, we can dig into that if you guys would like. But just a long-winded way of saying like it's evolved. Our pipeline and how we look at deals has evolved. So you, you've spoken a, or you've referenced the idea of processes and systems a lot here. I'm, I'm curious of how that has looked specifically in your organization over the years. Can you, can you give some examples of systems that you've created or processes that you've, mm -hmm. that you've developed that others have carried out that have been instrumental in, in this growth? Yeah, so the beating heart, the lifeblood of our operations division, our fix and flip process is, uh, two, is two templates, right? We call them the, the milestone template and the trade tracker. So these are two documents, systems that are essentially started as lists, right? The things that need to happen and the order they need to happen in over the course of 5, 10, 15, 20, however many rehabs, you start documenting the things you're doing, the order you're doing them in. When you do them wrong, you're, you're, you know, you're quickly humbled 
like, wait a second, you did that out of order. Now you're paying the price because you got to delay because you got to go backtrack. So anyway, those things started to evolve. What they look like now is two big posters that sit in our office that our project manager drives his projects to. So it's the order of operations essentially for a fix and flip. It's uh, who comes in in what order. How do you achieve like there's tiers of tradesmen that are responsible for getting things to a certain level and phases for the completion of a project. This is hard to do without visuals. Sometimes I actually have them here and I, I just show them to the camera so folks can see what we're talking about. But I'm happy to share that with anyone who wants it. If they message me, we, we can talk about that at the end. But yeah, that's what systems and processes look like in our world. It's just like, hey, let's write down what it is that we're doing and the order we're doing it in. And after we do it enough times, we should see some synergies. We we should see some things happening um, in a similar fashion. And that is what ultimately becomes your system. And then you just have to be diligent about revisiting the system because no system is bulletproof. At first, you're going to need to touch it every week. Then you'll need to touch it every month. Then you'll need to touch it every quarter, right? But something like your chart of accounts for how you categorize expenses on your rehabs, that's not necessarily something you want to be touching every month because you'll never be able to do apples to apples comparisons on your projects. So we don't touch our chart of accounts, but once a year. But uh, any new systems that we're developing, like marketing milestones, like on a project, you better believe we're touching that every month for the first year until we're like, okay, I think we got this fleshed out well enough where it no longer needs to be revisited every month. Now we can just work to it. That's all great stuff. I mean, do you, in your role as visionary and integrator, are you the ones who's monitoring these systems from a high level and and is kind of driving this change? Or do you devolve that responsibility on the people who are actually executing on them? It's on them to execute to the system like we created. So together, I often work hand in hand with the person who's in the trenches doing the thing to develop the system. I don't force feed a process onto someone who's in the role doing it. I trust and believe that they know better because they're the ones doing it. And so I let them create it. And then I review it with them. In the past, when it was me in the role, sure, like that's my system. But what I encourage my team to now do is say, hey, if we're still working from one of the ones I created, vet it for me. Show me where I made a mistake. There's nothing I love more than someone identifying an inefficiency in my process. Like you just saved me money. You just like saved me time and money. I have no ego when it comes to that stuff. I'm happy to make a change if you found something that's more efficient or cheaper or faster or whatever the case is. I'm curious um, to, to take a, a little detour from this, but maybe it's related to the, the process methodology too. A question that we get a lot, and I think a lot of beginning real estate investors have, is notwithstanding the operational stuff that we're talking about financially, like how do I structure stuff? Like how do I get started? Essentially, it sounds like you kind of went from zero to one very fast, and then from zero to like ten or you know hundred very quickly when mm-hmm. you were starting out. I guess it's two questions. A, do you have a process that you apply as well to uh, financial stuff, fundraising, debt, whatever else? And B, when you were starting out, how did that look like? Were you self-funding deals? Were you getting debt? Did you have partners, um, combination of all the above? To grow as fast as we have, you absolutely have to be relentlessly fundraising. It's one of like my three R's concept, right? Like be relentlessly raising. Always, anyone you're talking to could be a lender. A buddy of mine, Sonny, says, you've got a million bucks in your cell phone. We all do. 
And so, and I genuinely believe that if you tap your phone, if you tap your friends and family, you've got the capital that you need to do these projects. Most people just won't dare do it. What's it look like? So on my scorecard, one of my measurable KPIs is that I have to have two relevant lender conversations each week. And I report back to my team on that every Monday. And if I didn't have those conversations, my scorecard gets a red square on it. So I need to be doing that because I know that at the end of the day, that's what moves the needle for us from my role. Like as the visionary, I need to be finding and funding deals. So what's that look like? Two relevant lender conversations each week. What winds up happening is that you start those dialogues. They don't end within that one week window with someone cutting you a check. Frankly, you wouldn't want that anyway because you need to be able to pull capital as deal flow dictates. So, but that's a really tactical way that people can implement this. Like, start off making one relevant lender outreach call, email, text a week, right? If you're a listener and you're like, well, how do I start? Uh, it starts to the other point of your question how do you start? You start by letting people know what it is that you're doing. Nobody's going to lend to you if they don't know what the hell you're doing. And a lot of people are embarrassed. They're, I wouldn't say embarrassed. They're hesitant to hang the shingle publicly because what if it doesn't work out, right? Like, so what? What if it doesn't work out? Like, you're no worse off than you were before if it doesn't work out. So I was always okay with putting myself out there. And so at first, it started with how do you position yourself as someone who's believable that others would want to lend to? And we can talk about what that looks like because I have a process for that too. But I would say, hey, you know, if you're early on in your journey, talk, like just tell anyone who will listen that this is what you're doing now and see how fast people start expressing interest. A lot of people who were in my, um, my past life in corporate are now my lenders because to them, it's an opportunity to kind of live vicariously through us, right? Like they can watch all the HGTV they want. At the end of the day, they're still going to work and they want some exposure to the real estate investment totally, yeah. arena. We, we found they that as that well. They get that by lending us. We found that as well in all of our experience, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I so it, I, you alluded to at the beginning, and I know that, that this is a big part of your business and, and who you are, but being outspoken about what you're doing on social media. So I wonder how that has come about. Was that initially part of the plan? Were you always doing that? Is there a process to that as well? So no, early on, I was not in the restaurant space. You, would, you wouldn't necessarily know who the owners were. If you showed up, I looked like anyone else working the line, bringing people up, whatever the case was. What I heard that stuck with me when I transitioned over to real estate is I heard a cautionary tale from Grant Cardone, right? Your listeners likely know him, you know, love him or hate him. He's one of those types of guys, right? What he said that really resonated with me is like when, when the market took a dump, nobody knew me. That was a problem. And I said, you know what? If nobody knows you, you have no clout. You have no reach. And when things go sideways, you are left to the market. You're left to, you you don't have control. And so for me now, it's just about making sure folks know who I am and what I do. And uh, if people know you and they know that you're, you're an honest guy and that you keep your word and that, and that you've seen projects through and there's, you know, there's validation, you're believable, you will have opportunities regardless of market conditions. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think from 
that's something that Ryan and I talk about a lot is sort of how to, I, I think to your point about fear of failure, that's something endemic, I think, throughout a lot of entrepreneurship, right? Like people are scared to, to dive in or even scared to ask for money, right? Because it's like, well, what if I lose the money or what if I, I'm um, promising X, but what if I only deliver half of X or whatever else? And so that's, I think, um, I think your approach of looking at it more holistically, right? A lot of people look at it only in the context of real estate. Like I'm just doing real estate, but if you consider I'm an entrepreneur, right? And real estate is the one current way that I kind of express my entrepreneurial desires and, you know, do it. I think that's a good way to look at my, my background as well is that I, you know, am in real estate now, but before that I ran tech startups. I did that for a couple of years. And so for me, it's an extension of that same idea, philosophy, but just applied in a different space. So, uh, but all the same skills like raising money, self-promotion, um, processes to your point are, are absolutely relevant in different industries, right? It's not specific to real estate. Yeah. Self-promotion, you know, the way you just said it there, that, that resonates with me because self-promotion can often be seen as this egoistic chest pounding type right. thing. And you know what, as an entrepreneur, it's not meant to be like, it's really how you stay alive. Like we're not out here, like we eat what we kill as entrepreneurs. And I know that's kind of like a visceral thing, but like nobody else is making sure like the meals are coming in. We don't work for someone else. A lot of people want to, um, they're comfortable relinquishing that sovereignty to someone else. We're of a different breed. Like it doesn't work that way for us. So we have to be shameless self-promoters. I have to be willing to get on this microphone and say the things I'm saying and not in like an egoistic kind of way, just in like, hey, I'm saying these things because I genuinely believe them to be true and my track record should validate that. Yeah. And if it does, like I said before, when things go sideways, which they will inevitably will in every industry, in every business, those who are known for doing a thing, they'll stand out. The rest are going to go get jobs. Yeah. That's, that's the unfortunate reality of it. Like a lot of people we know right now that were in the business with us a year ago, they are either home or they work for someone else. Like a year ago when things went sideways, wholesalers disappeared. Like yeah. I was getting dozens of emails a day. I get two a day now. Like what happened to all those guys? Where'd they go? I think something that I, I find really interesting about what you're saying or, or uh, kind of the, the way that you're saying it is your, your optimism, your confidence in, in what you do and what you've been doing. And I think that that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs, early people in real estate, whatever, don't have because A, they might lack the experience or B, if, even if they do have the experience, it's hard for them to speak very passionately about what they're doing. And, and I, I relate that to our own experiences where we, when we were starting out doing different projects, there were certainly some projects that we were way more excited about than others. And I think when we would talk to investors or anybody in the space, it would be very obvious as we talked about it, which projects we didn't really like, but we still wanted to raise money for whatever, <laughs> which ones we did like, right? And so now we're doing something in the past year or so that we're really passionate about, which is we're investing a lot in Atlantic City and we're like kind of all in on it. We have our own money, a lot of our own money in it, whatever else. And it's very easy to speak passionately about it because we're passionate about it, right? But before that, we were doing different stuff and it was like, you know, we could kind of like construct the argument, the narrative, whatever we wanted, but people see through that, right? You know, even even your friends see through like, well, you don't really seem like you're... <laughs> You're really all in on it, right? You're so, reading through a script. Yeah. You're, not, you're not speaking your own mm -hmm. truth. Yeah. So to your point about burning the ships and being all in, right? There's something to that. I think that, that that's not like, a, that's not just a truism or like a saying, right? There's something really to that. People, people can read that. They can read the clues in your voice, your intonations, how you present yourself for sure. It's intense. It's not going to resonate with everybody. And frankly, it shouldn't. But if you're going to give me your money, uh, you, you're going to want to believe and I'm going to bleed out of my eyes to get it back to you. 
And when I say right. something like that and I say it with intensity, it sounds believable. Like it is believable and the track record supports it. So yeah, I think, you know, to that point, like what's a way to help people earlier in their journey, get the confidence that they need to speak the way we are about what it is that we do. I think the only way, the only way is to get around people who are doing it at the level you want to do it at. You want to be a millionaire, like hang around five others, you will become the sixth. Simple fact. It just, it is. It, it, I've seen it proof itself out over the five years that I've been in masterminds. Uh, like I said, before we started recording today, I was with my mastermind. Like we're achieving at a super high level, thanks in part to the fact that we have this collective supporting one another. And if people are out there wondering, well, where do I find this collective of people that I can align with in the middle of a pandemic? Hey, you don't actually have to know them and physically be in proximity. Obviously, that's the best way. But like, you know who's in my circle that I've never even met? Grant Cardone, right? Ed Milet, Tom Bilyeu. These people are in my circle in the sense that I consume their content and I agree and align with the things that they say. And I get my confidence from the things that I watch them achieve. So you can, you can level up your circle without having to even leave your house. I think it's an you interesting <laughs> point. I mean, I, I, so, something that when I was first getting started in the entrepreneurial world, I would always look at these people, like, you know, I was at the tech world, right? So I would look at people like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg, you know, these people that tech guys idolize for, for correct or incorrect reasons. But, you know, it is the case, right? And I, I think that there's a tendency to think like, oh, there's something really magical about these people, right? There's something really magical about Elon Musk. He must just be really like a super genius or he must be like, a, you know, whatever. And then you meet some of these people. I've never met Elon Musk, but you meet some of these people that are at that level and you talk to them like, well, this is just a normal dude. Like he just, there's nothing like, he's not like he had some God given, you know, what, he's not like 10 feet taller than me or something like that, right? He's just a normal that would, person. That would be hard. You're six five. <laughs> well, you know, but you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a, a, it's a little bit humbling because you realize they're real people, but B it's, it's empowering because it's like, well, this guy doesn't have anything super unbelievable that I can't also have. Right. Like he, he doesn't, he doesn't discover some sort of, you know, weird chemical in his basement that he just, you know, is exploiting now, right? He just, he, you know, he, he followed whatever he followed processes, maybe in the right time, right place, right personality, you know, whatever you want to say, those are the things that he did, but it's not like he was given by God, something that nobody else has. So I think that that, to your point about hanging around with people, like that, you sort of learn like, oh, Grant Cardone, he's just a normal guy, right? He's not um, descended from heaven, for example. They're just, you know what they are that a lot of people aren't that I try to, I try to emulate? Discipline. That's what it is. Like at the end of the day, the differentiator is discipline. Like I want to be so consistent, you can set your watch to me. And I'm not, I'll be honest. Like I miss just like anybody else misses. I'll argue that I miss a lot less because I've really worked to cultivate that discipline muscle. When I look at those guys and I think about the differentiator, it's their willingness to show up every day, get kicked in the teeth and show up again the next day, no matter what. Like the Seinfeld thing about like, how do you write jokes, right? Like, how do you become Seinfeld? You write a joke every day. That's it. Like, that's his claim to fame is like, I wrote so many shitty jokes that eventually I wrote some really good ones. Mm -hmm. But every day, right? Any writer will tell you that. Any writer worth anything will say, you write every day. Well, what do you do when you don't want to write? You write anyway. <laughs> is there so are there any disciplines that that you struggle with or that you're constantly working to improve? Always. <laughs> Always. Uh what I'll say I've really and I'm super proud of is this last year I've got my morning 
routine down. Like, and this is something I fought with for a long time, but I'm ritualistic about my morning. I am not on the back end of my day. I don't bookend my day the way I should. I, I'll have a cup of tea. I'll sit to read a book. I'll wind up watching a YouTube video about crypto investing <laughs> and there goes my night's sleep, right? Because crypto is like in your face. The lights couldn't be any freaking brighter. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. you're trying to get the blue, <laughs> you're trying to blue block and get ready to wind down. So what I'm making a conscious effort to do now, and I need to be more disciplined about it, is an evening routine that mimics my morning routine. Morning's about like getting going, evening's about winding down tea, meditation, some prayer, read, no screens. Like I know what I need to do. I just need to be more disciplined about doing it. And, and that would be huge for me because I don't sleep well. And I suspect it has a lot to do with that. Is there anything with the benefit of hindsight, any disciplines that you wish you would have taken more seriously early on or things that it took you a long time to, realis- uh, to realize the importance of in your earlier years? I guess specific to your real estate career. So earlier years, meaning three, four, five, six years ago that are just kind of showing their importance now? So being a disciplined leader is so, so powerful. I was a really poor leader for a really long time. When I came to the realization that everything starts and stops with you, the concept of extreme ownership, like everything is your fault. As a leader, literally everything is your fault. Anything that a team member does wrong is your fault because you didn't train them properly. Like if they didn't want it, they didn't have the capacity to do it, uh, then you chose the wrong team member for that seat. In the end, anything and everything is your fault. Once I really embraced the concept of extreme ownership, which takes really sidelining your ego, and you have to be disciplined and vigilant because uh, being the leader that your team deserves is not easy. It's easy to just phone it in. It's easy to be like, well, that's what I have you for, right? And leave it to their, like, you can't leave them to their own devices regardless. Even if they're A players, which A players for the most part, you can let them run. That's what you should do. You should get out of their way. Still, they need to be led. I need to be led. We all need to be led. So I would say the discipline of um, extreme ownership as a leader, that was something that took me a while to cultivate. And still, I'm working on it constantly. So I wouldn't say I've got anything figured out. Yeah, that resonates a lot. I think we've we've talked about that at length. I mean, it's it's certainly a hard, it's a hard concept to wrap your head around, especially when you come from a world where everyone's tasks and everyone's responsibilities are clearly delineated, so that it sort of like it's meant to like engender the the opposite. It's it's meant to be able to like assign blame to one person if they don't carry their their weight and i think that's that's certainly an issue that's rampant throughout yeah I th- I larger think, corporations because yeah it's an interesting point too because I, I you know I, I think about this from the perspective of an entrepreneur right a lot of people that have worked a long time you know as you did in in these cubicles right they say well the reason why i'm starting my own thing is because i don't want to like have any processes, right? I don't want to go to meetings. Those are all like BS because that's like why these big companies are like the elephant, right? And that I, I've always pushed back on that because I, I've always said, you know, these company, whatever large company that you think about, maybe they are the elephant, right? But they have some process. They didn't invent that process just to say, I want to burn time and burn money. There was some rationale behind it. Maybe it's gone wild. You know, maybe it's gone crazy at this point because the management and all, all these other people are involved in it. But the concept behind it is not bad, right? The concept that you have to have a team meeting to discuss something. That's not 
not a bad concept. The concept that you might have to have a check-in with, you know, with your boss or have, you know, send an email to document that you've done something. Those are all okay things. Maybe misapplied, they're wrong. But a lot of people, I think, have gone into the entrepreneurial space saying, the reason why I'm an entrepreneur is because I don't want to do any of those things. And then they find out a few years later, like, oh my gosh, like I have no organization. I have no process. You know, I have nothing. You know, I don't know. I have no direction for what I'm doing, right? So um, it's refreshing to hear you say how process-oriented you are because I think a lot of entrepreneurial small businesses are like so anti that just as, as a concept that it's really hurtful. They like the freedom. Like they, they thought that they got into the world of entrepreneurship to be free. Right. They don't subscribe to the concept that routine will set you free. Nobody wants to be held accountable to a routine, especially after you leave corporate. And I wasn't either early on. But what I've come to find now is like people often ask me like, how, like my calendar's wide open. People are like, how is that possible? Today, I love what I do on Thursdays. It's really my heaviest day. But like the reason that it's wide open is because I'm ritualistic about my morning routine and I hammer out more by nine o'clock than most people do all day. Because I'm, you know, and then I know what my peak productive windows are. I know when I need to be having those conversations with lenders. I know when I need to be doing that, like that deal modeling, the things that require a lot of that capacity. I save those things for my peak productive window because I know what that is. It, it, it takes time. Like yeah. this, we, how does Tony Robbins say it? Entrepreneurship is the, is the world's greatest self-development program with the highest compensation package. Right. So as entrepreneurs, we're learning about ourselves. And in turn, the more we learn about ourselves, the better we become at whatever it is that we do, the better leaders we are, the more we're rewarded externally by the world for the value we bring. And, and so that's, that's the journey that you're really on as an entrepreneur. For anyone listening who's new to the journey, like that's what it's about. You think it's about whatever the widget is. You think it's about real estate or flipping houses or wholesaling assignments or whatever. That's not the game. It's not, that's not the business you're actually in. We're coming to an end here. I would be curious. I know you you alluded a little bit to this commercial repositioning stuff. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, maybe briefly. Like, what what's the next the next year look like for you, or two years? Like, what kind of what are you hoping to achieve? You know, what is your vision? Well, going back to what differentiates us and where we are in our journey from those that started alongside us. The thing about not just doing that one deal, but doing the other one and doing two in parallel, then like layering on we're doing the same thing now. It's easy to like get lulled to sleep. Success has a way of doing that too. So, all right, you got this new commercial repositioning, like this deal is, you're, you're working on funding for it. You've got the deal, it's locked up and this and that. It's easy to say, well, that's going to be my focus for the next however many months, but I'm not willing to stop there. I know that whatever it is that we're going to do there, we can do elsewhere in parallel. We have the bandwidth to do it, so it's not about just getting that first, this is this will be our first ever commercial deal. We're not just going to do the one. We're going to look for an opportunity to do another. Yeah. And we'll try and make sure it's in proximity to that one. We'll find some sort of economies of scale, some things that make it make sense. But uh, yeah, that's what it looks like to me. And then the next step is to whatever it is that we learn and do there at that level, let's shift it to either a different asset class or go up the value ladder in that. Like I was just in a building today that was, flipped, right? They flipped a commercial, an office building in three years, $27 million acquisition, roughly $13 million repositioning, $50 million out sale. Like if you can flip a house, you can flip an office building. And so I encourage people to think that way about these types of things. Like the next deal doesn't have to be a six figure flip. It can be a seven or it can be an eight. Like it's uh, it's out there. Yeah, absolutely. 
and th this has been such a great conversation. I really hope that we can have you back on the podcast at some point soon. I know that you offer a lot of value and different things to people. How can people reach out or find you if they have questions or want to interface with you in, in other ways? Yeah, I encourage people to, uh, there's so much free content, right? I, like I said, with the Flip Tip book, we've curated so much content over these um, these five, six years. So it's, it's out there. You can check out GabeDeSilva.com, my hub. That's where everything kind of lives. From there, jump over to YouTube, watch our docu-series, The Build, download the free ebook, dig into that. If they want to go deeper, depending on where they are in their journey, there might be opportunities for us to do some things with our mastermind or possibly our fix and flip foundation syndicate. I encourage people to start at the website. Uh, if they want to reach out to me directly, they can find me at real Gabe Silva on Instagram. I still do all my own DMs. So it'll be me that you're connecting with if you reach out. So shoot me a message. I'm happy to connect with folks there and, uh, and happy to bring value however I can. I'm, first and foremost, we're here to serve and that's what we seek to do. Thanks, Gabe. This has been awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, hopefully we can do this maybe in person next time. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me and uh, I look forward to doing it again. Great. Thank Thanks, you so Gabe. much. And thank you for listening to the Brick by Brick podcast. We really appreciate your continued support. If you're capable of liking or subscribing to our podcast on however you're listening, please do that. It helps us a lot. If you'd like to contact Ryan or I directly, my email address is john, J-O-H-N, at libertyhudson.com. And Ryan is ryan, R-Y-A-N, at libertyhudson.com. But until next time, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to visit us at brickxbrickrealestate.com for free content to help you along your real estate journey and to follow along on our projects. Subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app and engage with us online via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and brickxbrickrealestate.com. See you next time on the Brick by Brick podcast.